morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to the globe from HughHewitt.com. If you're watching on Univision, you won't actually see me because we taped this two weeks ago. I'm in Vietnam, and I want to thank Mark Davis and Bob France for uh, sitting in for me all week long while I finished my vacation with the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt. But before I left, I sat down to tape two of our Hillsdale Dialogues, the last radio hour of the week on the Hugh Hewitt Show, as always. A conversation with Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues at Hillsdale College, the Lantern of the North. Uh, all things Hillsdale are collected at Hillsdale.edu, including a remarkable new video series uh, with my guest, Victor Davis Hansen, about the book previous to the one we are discussing, The Second World Wars. And all of my conversations with Dr. Arn, VDH, and everyone else from Hillsdale, dating back to 2013, there are 250 of them now. The best podcasting you can possibly want are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, your new book, The Case for Trump, has dropped now. It came out on March 4th or 5th. It's in bookstores everywhere. It's shocked a lot of the left. And I, even before I left on my vacation, I tweeted a couple of posts about it because I'd read the book and was very full of praise. And I got what I expect will be the, the, the blowback to your book. Not an argument, but an invective. He's a crank. I, 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 that's a direct quote. Uh, And I believe that that goes to what we were talking about when we left off last week, which is the contempt of progressives. You write on page 46 to 7 of the case against Trump. What is again odd about these example of open progressive contempt for the American interior is not just how ubiquitously politicians and journalists voice them, but also how candidly and indeed confidently they had repeated notions of smelly, toothless, lazy, quote, garbage people. In that sense, those who hated Trump and what he represented also explained precisely why so many went to the polls to elect him and why Trump's own uncouthness was in its own matter contextualized by his supporters as a long overdue pushback to the elite disdain and indeed hatred shown them. As one side loudly snickered about the stinky white Trump demographic, the other quietly voted. I think that's profound, Victor. Well, I think we... We all agree that um, that people on the, the left felt that they had license to say just pretty, pretty pretty terrible things about people's teeth and smell. And the people who were saying this were not representative of, of the American people. They were a small coastal elite, and they were in a culture. And they and they talked about people that were voting for Trump the way that you, as a journalist, and your colleagues, and myself on the conservative side, did not talk about leftists. We might have joked about that they were out of touch are that they were elites, but we didn't describe their clothing or we didn't describe their facial features or their teeth. And they felt that they could engage in that asymmetry because they were morally superior to both Trump and and his supporters. And so they didn't understand that they were creating a new new resentment. And they didn't understand the Electoral College because they had been nursed on Obama politics in which the white working classes were either not participating or demographically doomed and that there were, you know, the, the red states had all flipped blue in the American Southwest. And this was the uh, Obama-Clinton 16-year regnum. And then suddenly Trump comes along, crafts some issues that appeal to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio, Florida, North Carolina. And he doesn't need much. He flips these rural areas that then outvote or at least match Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Ann Arbor, Detroit, and he wins those states, and they're still clueless why those people came out and voted in a way they hadn't in mass for somebody like Trump. And if you say that Trump was more authentic than 
silly. They'd say, no, he lies. But think about it, you. Trump would never go to a rally of African-American voters and change his patois the way Obama did. He would never go to Southern voters and say, you all. He would never dress up in camouflage the way John Kerry did duck hunting in 2004. So whatever he is, people thought, I wouldn't dress that way. I wouldn't put my skin color that way. I wouldn't comb my hair over. But he is what he is, and he'll dress with a suit and tie at the Indiana State Fair in a way that no other politician we've seen does. And he's the first politician on the Republican side that said, our. Yeah, you, bo- you point that out. He uses that a lot. Now, there there is a rage machine that has been constructed on the left. You know, Media Matters for America has a tracker. We call him Emo, who listens to every word of this show and tries to distort it and create rage against me and against my guests. They are creating rage against Trump. But what you point out in the case for Trump is every action has a reaction. And as they stoke these fires in various ways of rage against Trump, they start backfires among people that are being caught up in it. And they're not embarrassed to be for Trump. You know, I, I, I refuse to be embarrassed. He's, he's appointed the best judges of my life. For 30 years, I've been working to get an originalist majority on the Supreme Court. And, and 30 appeals court judges who actually believe in the Constitution. He's far better than W, largely because Harry Reid made it possible to put conservatives on without with just a majority. But Mitch McConnell has orchestrated the opening beautifully, and he's delivered on the two things that matter to me, national security spending and judges, more than anything else. At the end of your book, you write in detail about what he's delivered. A lot of other people care about other things, but for me, it's national security spending and judges, and Trump delivered. He did. And I can remember a decade ago on your show when you were very upset about the temporary nomination of Harriet Myers, and we talked about David Souter, and we thought, how in the world can a Republican president fall into this Earl Warren, Brennan Trapp, uh, John Paul Stevens, once again, of appointing a justice that's mildly conservative and turns out to be fanatically progressive on the court? He hasn't done that. And more importantly, we're told he doesn't listen to anybody. He really outsourced his legal expertise, the legal expertise to the Federalist Society, which is one of the most a brilliant move. Absolutely. And I I have to correct the record, though, Victor. When when W appointed Harriet, I was disappointed, but I protected her. I did everything I could to get her confirmed because I I thought that I know you did, but I mean that we we didn't think that that was wasn't a good idea. Yeah, it wasn't a good idea, but I felt that. And I was right. I think in retrospect, if you defeated Myers, you you wounded Bush. And so you have to defend your people in battle, even when they screw up. Trump is interesting uh, uh, about this. You do not write much. The critique of Trump is that he's loyal uh, conditionally and that he often abandons loyalty quickly. What do you make of that critique? Well, I think it's reciprocal. If he perceives that you're loyal, then he sort of backs you. If you if he perceives that you don't show gratitude. Gratitude, I think, is a better word than loyalty with him. He believes in gratitude. So he's mad at John McCain because John McCain came to him, as did Romney, and begged for his endorsement, and he gave it to them. And then they didn't uh, reciprocate in kind. That was an interesting take, by the way. I had not read that take before until I read the case against Trump, uh, the case for Trump, your new book. And I never really considered that ingratitude, which is for me a, a cardinal sin, uh, I don't put it in the political context the way he does, because politics is basically all fake anyway. But personal betrayal is always, right, a wounding thing. And I think I think it is. And I think he's reciprocal. Even the worst tweets that he did, 
the McCain tweet I thought was the worst. They're all retaliatory. I'm not excusing them. I'm just saying he's like a coiled cobra. And when somebody attacks him, then he says, I'm a counterpuncher. But almost every single notorious quote that he's given or tweet, if you go back and research what prompted that, it was somebody gratuitously thought, I'm going to pile in on Trump. I'm going to be Joe Biden saying, I'm going to take him behind the gym and beat him up. Or I'm going to be Megyn Kelly and just hound him. Or I'm going to be uh, anybody. And then Trump, his attitude is, I'm going to demolish this person that attacked me in such a crude and crass way. And what's interesting, Victor, I've got a couple of Trump tattoos, but they're light. Because I only boxed with him. We sparred. Yeah. We, did, we didn't go 15 rounds three times like Frazier and Ali, or it was 15, 12, and 15. The people who did always lost. <laughs> they, they did, and it creates a sense of deterrence. So you see fewer and fewer people want to go down. I, I think in the book I said they don't want to get dirty with Trump Trump and in a wrestling match, because Trump's actually been in a, in a wrestling match. Yeah, <laughs> really. Actually, yeah. honest to God, true, been in a wrestling Honestly, match. <laughs> Who would want to get in there with him? And so he understands that. And uh, so for all of their supposedly uh, courageous acts, they're not very courageous anymore. They don't want to go on head-to-head with him. And so they do it behind his back or they they do a side. But he also, you know, he's going to have to do again if he wants to win re-election. Unlike Democrats running right now, who will not go near Fox News or this show, Trump would go anywhere in 2015 and 16 and go as long as they wanted. I remember one hour with Anderson Cooper. He was a, he's fearless about an interview. He was. And uh, they could never square that circle of this person who supposedly hates the media and so unfair to it with being the most accessible president we've ever seen or presidential candidate to the media. And I think he, he understood that for 16 years or 15 years, he was host of this real TV show, and he developed these repartee skills that he thought were superior to the media people. One thing about Trump they don't understand is I think he doesn't really judge something as smart or stupid, but whether it gets ratings or not. That's a, hey, so, When we come back, we're going to talk about that because you are so right. Victor Davis Hanson is my guest on this week's Hilltale Dialogue, the book, The Case for Trump basically obviates the need for every other Trump book for the next two years. Go and get it at Amazon.com and any bookstore. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour on the Hillsdale Dialogue, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I'm not back from vacation, but I pre-taped this before I left because it's the Hillsdale Dialogue. And Victor Davis Hanson has this amazing new book out called The Case for Trump. And uh, Victor, when we went to break... You were mentioning something I often tell people in my speeches, having done four of the presidential debates. And like you, I have not been to the White House. I'm not Trump's pal. I don't talk to him. I have interviewed him since the election, in fact. Um, And I I think he kind of views me as kryptonite because something bad always happens when we talk to each other. But I voted for him. I'm a reluctant Trump voter. But I've often remarked to people he had a set of TV skills that you could only see up close, like staying on your mark like remaining fixed face, like uh, striking when you needed to strike, that were honed in a dozen years of reality television. In other words, for the era in which we are are living, the media vastly underestimated the value of the skills of, of not only television, but also being a developer. Developers are always flexible. They are whoever they need to be in whatever room they are with whomever they are, and they always know the deal can be amended. They underestimated that completely. They did, and they should have read his various, maybe even if they're ghostwritten, his Art of the Deal books, because he sets out in every one of them uh, the art of the deal, and that is to confuse your enemy, to be boisterous, to make the enemy 
or the opponent or the adversary or the negotiator want to get out of that room as quickly as possible and conclude a deal or to demand five times what you would you know, would be willing to take under uh, a negotiation and a settlement. 55% is okay, 51%, but you never ask that. You ask for 90%. And then uh, about the 25th Amendment, he says in a lot of the books, you want to seem like you're unstable. You want to be uh, unpredictable. Predictability, which we saw with Obama, is is insane, especially, I think, in in foreign negotiations and diplomacy, even at the nuclear level. Yeah, the madman theory that Nixon invented. But if I can, there's one, I want to be honest in my critique of the book, there's one thing I disagree with you on, and it's probably uh, a bit self-justifying. The Judge Curiel controversy. When that erupted, I went nuclear. I said, this is a plane headed towards the mountain. If he continues to attack him as a Mexican, etc., we're going to lose this election because... People like me, the reluctant Trump voters, refuse to be racist because I'm not racist. I'm not going to be called racist. I'm never. That's my Catholic upbringing. And he had to change course or he would have lost the election. At that point in the book, Victor, you adopt some sympathy towards him that I don't think he's owed. In other words, you were you were looking at it from his point of view. I just didn't see any sympathy there. Well, I said in the book it wasn't wise. And I said in the book that he had the weaker case. and He did. And I think the judge was right uh, to rule as he eventually did in that. But I also said the two grounds on which he were attacked were fallacious. He said Mexican, and people said, you don't use the word Mexican. Well, I was called in high school a Swede. I'm part Irish. They call Irish. I don't think Mexican-Americans have a special rubric where all of a sudden you say you can't say Mexican and you can't in the way you can say Russian or German or black with getting rid of the hyphen. That was number one. That's what he said. Number two is he said he's part of a Mexican organization. That's like a Swedish organization, an Irish or and he was. He was part of the La Raza Guild. And that word you, I don't think I think we've given a pass on that. This is interesting. You and I have a deep disagreement on that and I'll bet you it's because you're from Selma and yeah, well, you're comfortable where did with La Raza it. Come from? La Raza came from Fernand uh, Franco's Spain with and it, the idea was that the Spanish-Iberian fascist movement was going to confuse, collude, or equivalent, uh, equate being Spanish and living, speaking Spanish on the Iberian Peninsula with a racial component in a way that Mussolini had created a Raza movement, two Zs in Italian. Interesting. And they were all emulating him. And that was all imported to the United States in a number of books in 1960s. And so we've given a pass to the race. And to have a judge say, I'm a member of the Race Lawyers Association. My mom was a Superior Court and Appellate Court judge in California. Had she been a member of the Race Lawyers, she would have been disbarred. And the reason I think I'm correct on that, the National Council of La Raza faced so much criticism about that, that two years ago they changed their name to Unidos, you know, us. so I think they even realize that the word La Raza is a polarizing racialist term whose origins can be traced to fascism in Europe in the 1930s. And to have a, a, a federal judge be a member of the group that self-identified as the race, I think this is Oh, I agree. I, you can critique the membership. I believe he actually ended up resigning from that. But boy, did Trump step in it then, unnecessarily so. And he would have lost the reluctant Trump voters had he stayed there. Stay tuned, America. Victor Davis Hanson coming right back. Welcome back, America 2 Hewitt with Victor Davis Hanson on the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale. I'm still on vacation and won't be back till Thursday, but I, I pre-taped this because the book dropped. 
Victor's brand new book, The Case for Trump, is a must read. And of course, it's skyrocketed up because it is. It's in bookstores everywhere. Get it from Amazon. Uh, Victor, you talk a lot about um, the president's personal behavior and the, vul- the term vulgar is used a lot. And, and that gets to why so many reluctant Trump voters like me are uncomfortable. I, I call myself a Victorian. What I really am is sort of an Orthodox Catholic. And a lot of his behavior is not acceptable in my worldview. On the other hand, you point out that if you, if you want to rank presidents by depravity in terms of personal behavior, the most depraved is probably Jack Kennedy, who by, quote, contemporary standards was a seals, serial sexual harasser, if not a likely assaulter. Next would be Clinton. Next would be LBJ. Then would come Trump. I've actually ran through this exercise. Aaron and Truman both like to drink and swear. W and HW are tied for being Yankees. And then Ike is the most rectitudinous. Maybe Carter, both are military men. Do you agree with my ranking? I do, but I would say that if Trump wanted to uh, cut down his taxes and he said that his art of the deal profits were capital gains tax and he paid them at 15 percent rather than 39 percent federal income tax, he would be impeached right now. And that's what Ike did. Remember that. Oh, I forgot that. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm, I'm not justifying Trump. He wasn't my first choice in the primaries, but... That said, we're applying a standard to him that we would not apply to any other president. And Barack Obama got a sweetheart sale from Tony Resco on a lot next to his home. Oh, my gosh. Did he not pay income taxes on the amount that was given to him of the sale? And he said, I screwed up. And that was it. There was no audit. There was nothing. And so he also was fined, I think, over $300,000 his campaign for improper contributions. There was no special counsel. So I think everybody has to take a deep breath and say Donald Trump's behavior bothers us. But on the standard of what we've not been bothered with or perhaps didn't know because of the nature of the media in the past, it's not out of the ordinary. I'm always brought back to FDR's. 1944 liaisons with Lucy Mercer when his own daughter, Anna, set up Trist in the White House for Roosevelt to see his mistress. If Trump right now was seeing a mistress in the White House and Ivanka was setting up the appointments, I don't know what would happen. Or in this age of Me Too, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. I mean, I always ask for just one standard. Let's just develop a standard, then apply it to every situation. And That's what I tried to say in the book. I just want to know what the rules are, the standards are, and I'll follow them. That's it. And now I want to talk a little bit about our our own party. At least it's my party. I don't know if you identify as a Republican. You might be an independent. I'm a Republican, but boy, you have a completely accurate critique of what happened. I think because W was a war president... He could not take care of the political side and felt restrained in waging politics. But boy, did Washington Republicanism ossify and it became a party of tropes. And moreover, it became a party closed to any idea that wasn't generated by the staffs of congressmen with power. And even when I tried to tell them and I I had Kevin Brady on the air and said, if you take away the income tax deduction for state taxes and home mortgage interest, you're going to get crushed in the blue states. And they got crushed in the blue states because people got a tax raise in California and New York. They're completely indifferent, Victor, to what people who live in the rest of the country think. They are as much a part of the problem as the progressive left in many ways. Funny you said that because I talked to some congressmen and said, if you get rid of the deduction, you're not only going to get crushed, but you're going to lose a lot of Republican conservative people who unfortunately have 
live in a state like California for years are going to have to go see their bank to borrow money to pay their income tax because it's going to effectively double in California. And we're not responsible conservatives for a 13.3 top rate and getting getting so little in return. But they, uh, you're right. It was just that's your problem, not mine. And I, I made a moral it, argument. I'm curious. My, my moral argument is when people build their lives, uh, they, they suffer reliance damages, and it's immoral to change the rules of the game after 25 years. Now, it's easy for me. I can move because intellectual capital is mobile. But if you've built a business, like my friend Rhett Rasmussen, who runs Solar Grills, he can't move his production facility somewhere else after 30 years. He's screwed. Yeah, I'm sitting in a house with the sixth generation to live in it. I'm not going to destroy it or leave. And it wasn't, and I, I didn't get much warning. I only got uh, one year. I mean, it wasn't like they said we're going to phase this in over ten years so people could save the money. And you're getting hit with a, a huge tax increase. And yet, I think that lost David Valdeo, my congressman, his seat. I think it lost the Orange County seats, and it was suicidal. In the same way, W, whom I thought was I liked a great deal, but I think his advisor said you're unpopular with Iraq. Michael Moore, Cindy Sheehan are killing you. You can't reply to them. That would be unpresidential. They'll fade out. If you have no uh, child left behind, Common Core, uh, Medicare prescription drug, don't worry how to pay for them. Federal, you know, growth of federal bureaucracy. This will pacify or, or um, will calm down the left. And they looked at that, the left did, and said, I see weakness here. And therefore, they were emboldened rather than repaid it with, you know, magnanimity. Yes. Yeah, there is no magnanimity on the left. That's the problem. And there is no magnanimity in Trump. Uh, there is, by, how, by, by contrast, though, geniality. And everyone will tell you who goes to a meeting with him, he's one of the most charming people in the world in private. It's just this cobra-like quality that you talk about. I, I want to look forward to, uh, you quote Joseph Epstein, which, of course, wins my heart because he's bringing me the brain of Joseph Epstein and his writing ability, please. On page 257, I approve of almost everything he has done, Epstein quotes his son as remarking, and I disapprove of almost everything he has said. In the final analysis, his ways are not your ways or my ways, Victor, but when we're faced with the choice between him and Bernie Sanders, I know how I'm going to vote. Well, you said at the beginning of the interview when you said the word binary, everybody thinks that we live in a utopian um, world. We don't. We live in a Manichaean world where there's an A and B, and 51% for people who live in the real world is preferable to 49%. I think Trump gives you a lot greater edge than that, but we don't have a choice. We have people who, in the United States, a large number of them, who feel that our future is progressively uh, going to, and it's going to be social. It's socialism. And it's going to be larger federal government, and it's going to attack things like the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment. And I don't want to live in a world like that. I don't want my children to live in a world like that. In fact, early in one of his interviews with me, I think I did 15 or 16, he said, I'm going to be a cheerleader for the United States, which, by the way, sounds a little corny and a little seventh and eighth grader. But there are a whole bunch of Americans who did not want their president to do apology tours. But they wanted cheerleading, Victor. And you, you point out again and again, there this this um, in conclusion, most Beltway insiders and New York Rondies wrote off Trump's declinism as sophomoric. It was supposedly crafted and guided by a motley group of half-educated would-be Nietzscheans. And those autodidacts supposedly had planted a thin veneer of respectable thought onto what otherwise was a xenophobic, nativist, and racist red state wine. You expose that as not true, but I guarantee you. 50% at least of media grandi still believe that. 
Well, I think more than that do. But Trump's attitude is, I think it's pretty practical. You don't have to be perfect to be good. And what's the alternative? And he's a practical businessman, so he never really thought you had to be perfect to be successful. So he looks at the world and says, why is everybody coming to the United States and Americans are not flocking over to Europe or they're not flocking to Mexico? Or he'll ask basic questions, or would the China, if, if the trade system's so good, would the Chinese like to switch places with us? These very simple questions nobody had really ever posed. They thought they were beneath them, but when you start to pose them, you say, wow, China has an asymmetrical trade relationship because it's in their interest. And then he sort of said, well, you know, they're never going to be liberal like all these Republicans told us that we just take a hit from China. And there's a few speed bumps like Tiananmen Square on the way to liberal democracy. Now, I'm guilty. It's not going to be Carmel. I'm guilty. It's not going to be yeah, Carmel. I didn't it's, see it's Xi Jinping be... coming. I, I did not. You know, I didn't. I, I was totally on. I, I bought into. Mercantile, I think it's a mercantile version of the 1930s Greater Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere that Japan was crafting and then announced in 1940. I, I have come to believe that, but I did not. You know, for so long, the wish gives birth to the the thinking. I wanted them to go the way of Japan. Uh, but they did not suffer the defeat that Japan suffered. And so they are an emperor-driven society. Are they not, Victor? No, I think they are. And I think that's why they and they assume that we're going to always defer to them and give them exemption. Otherwise, why would the chauffeur of Dianne Feinstein think for 20 years she could, he could, with exemption, and he got exemption, pass on secrets about Dianne Feinstein, who was head of the Senate a Judiciary Committee and, and, and Intelligence Committee in that period, pass on that stuff to Chinese operatives? Or why is Silicon Valley basically the hub of Chinese espionage in the United States? And and they would not allow that uh, on our part. Maybe we would try it, but we wouldn't get away with it. And their attitude is, if we can get away with it, and I'm quoting now a Chinese consulate told me this directly once, if we can get away with it, it must be okay with you. Because we wouldn't let you do what we're doing. So either you're weak and stupid, and therefore we have no respect for you, or you feel that you owe us something, and it's China's turn to take over the world. But either way, we're going to keep doing it until you stop us. And that's pretty much what she told me. And I was shocked when I heard it, but there was a certain, I don't know, animal cunning and, and brutal Neanderthal logic to it that nobody saw except Trump. Yeah. And you know what? what's funny, you, is that go back to 2016 and 15, we thought Trump, was a nut by fixating on China. Now I pick up foreign affairs. I hear my colleagues at Hoover. I listen to the Council on Foreign Relations. And you know what I'm finding? All people are saying we were at the point of no return. We've got to challenge China. We've got to renegotiate trade deals. We've got to talk about technological appropriation. Silicon Valley is being robbed blind. These are left-wing people who are saying that. He converted people, but they'll never never own where the conversion came from. It's too embarrassing. I'll come back. One more segment with Victor Davis Hanson. The brand new book is The Case for Trump. You've got to read this, especially if you're on the left, especially if you are a reluctant Trump voter, because the same binary choice we faced in 2016 is coming back. We'll talk about that when we return, America. Don't go anywhere except to HughHewitt.com. At the very top of my website, you're going to see Haiti, Humanitarian Crisis, Food for the Poor, Inc. Haiti, Humanitarian Crisis. That's where you go to make a donation to assist people struggling in Haiti. Remember, they had these 
enormous disturbances in Haiti at the beginning of February. So we moved up our annual campaign for the, the lost and the least on the uh, in the country of Haiti. And the Food for the Poor is just the very best organization operating abroad. And I say that to you every year. I do a lot of work for people in the United States. We do a lot of campaigns for the people in the United States. But the only group I support working abroad is Food for the Poor because of their record, because of their very low overhead, because of their dedication to the lost and the least. I know them. I talk with them every year. And if you invest, for example, $320, you will feed a family, of uh, an entire family in Haiti for an entire year and provide water for their village because of the accompanying well project that goes along with that donation. So please go over and look at Haiti Humanity. Crisis at huhewitt.com. Look at the material and see if it doesn't move your heart and contribute. Be as generous as you can. I also want to remind you about relieffactor.com. It's that time of the day. I always remind you, I take it every single day. It is with me abroad. It goes with me everywhere. First thing that I pack is relieffactor.com. First thing that I take every single morning on the show when I'm in the studio is Relief Factor. And I, I, I do it because I carry in curcumin, omega, and resveratrol ought to be part of every single person's diet. But I don't like guesswork. I don't want to go out there and figure it out for myself. I like to be free of the minor aches and pains that this natural supplements address every single day. But... I don't want to try and figure it out for myself. I let the scientists at relieffactor.com do it, and it works. It works. So join the tens of thousands of people out there who find relief from bad backs, from exercise and aging and all the assorted ailments that come with both of those things. Try relieffactor.com. I think I'll send some down to the Indians at spring training so that Francisco Lindor gets over his calf strain. Relieffactor.com. And I'll be right back with Victor Davis Hanson after this. Don't go anywhere. His book, The Case for Trump, a must read in the conversation with Victor, as always, riveting. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hills Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. My guest is Victor Davis Hanson, author of the brand new bestseller, The Case for Trump. Victor, we only have six minutes. I want to finish with just a couple of thoughts. One, um, I'm kind of depressed because you realize that I was at the Aspen Security Forum last summer when Rod Rosenstein came in and was greeted like a conquering hero by the lefties assembled there. It was sort of a JCPOA wake. And I think of him as a, as a fine public service, but if you line up Lepidus Augustus and Mark Anthony, he's definitely the Lepidus of that bunch. And then I, I, I wonder whether or not virtue is ever going to return to America in, in the way that, you know, Alfred the Great in the Netflix series, The Kingdom, was a virtue-based ruler. Are we in a post-character world now? Uh, I think in some ways we are, but I think part of it is that we've confused means and ends. We're in a progressive era where people said that radical egalitarianism or quality result or French revolutionary doctrine is so wonderful that it, it justifies any means necessary to achieve it. So we have Jim Rutenberg, New York Times in 2016, warning us that there's no longer journalistic jurisprudence. You don't really have to be disinterested because Trump is so beyond the pale. And I think that's we've slid into this idea that we're not going to be empirical or disinterested or judge things on the facts because the ultimate goal of equality at the end, at the out, at not the outset, but at the end, as a result, justifies any means or any, any method that you need to get there. And I see this happening mostly on the left. I think the right is basically live and let live. And it's not 100% totality of your person and your time 
to be political. But with the left throughout history, it always is. Well, here's why I'm a little bit optimistic. I just want to know if you share this. There's a person that the president hasn't nicknamed who has opposed him. That's the chief justice. He hasn't he hasn't given him a nickname and he's added Gorsuch and Kavanaugh to his number. And I actually am optimistic that if they get back to the framing into to classical liberalism, that we could have a renaissance in many different ways and we could actually compete with China. If we don't get back to that, I don't know how we do. But if we do get back to that and it's really the courts and military spending. And that's why I think he's going to win reelection, Victor, because they're going to nominate a nutter. Yes. And where are they going to nominate you? They're going to nominate basically a candidate that's for partial birth or even infanticide, as we saw in the Virginia circus. And they're going to nominate a party that can't secure the border because they believe it shouldn't be secure. Yes. They're not against. And they're going to nominate a party that wants uh, free college tuition, even though a kid on that forklift, 18 and never went to college, will be asked to pay for that for a pajama boy profile going, you know, until he's 30, taking units at a college, that's going to be free. And we're going to have Medicare for all. We'll violate the old bond, the old trust that started the idea that you contribute when you're young and then you enjoy the benefits with your old in a pact between generations. They're going to destroy that. They're going to have a wealth tax. They want to have a 70 or even 90% top rate. That's not a sustainable agenda. It's based on we hate Trump so much that we can bring all this in because you will vote against Trump and then you'll give us a pass without looking at, you know, in a very... And they got a false positive. Did they not get a false positive in 2018? You and I have a theory of 2018, but they have a false positive. They think it's going to work. They did. And they don't realize that in terms of traditional uh, midterm elections during the president's first term, they did okay in the House. The average loss is 25 seats. They won perhaps 39. But usually... uh, you don't pick up two Senate seats like Trump did. Uh, Obama lost, I think, six, and, and um, Clinton lost eight in 94 in the Senate. Trump picked up two, maybe three. So it wasn't that bad. It was more or less typical of every president. But they have recalibrated that as a referendum to go even harder left. And I would add, in the course of this, he's added Barr to his cabinet, Bolton to his NSA, Pompeo at state. You write about this. He's been upping his team as he moved along, which is very important for reelect. He is, and he's got people. I, I was a big fan of Mattis and McMaster. I like them both. But these new people are more ideologically attuned to the Trump agenda, and they're just as competent. And so he, you're right. He's professionalizing his cabinet. And they're, very, and they're not, uh, quote-unquote, the adults in the room that have to watch over Trump. They really like Trump. They respect him and they understand what he wants, and then they implement it in a methodical and institutionalized way. So he's much better with this, this cabinet. And that, that's going to permeate. It's already permeate, permeating the State Department and National Security Council and defense, where I think people understand that if you say Trump is a nut, uh, there's going to be consequences. And I, there wasn't there wasn't before. And there isn't. And boy, it's going to be a wild ride. And the best way to begin the ride is to know how it goes. And how it goes is laid out in The Case for Trump by Victor Davis Hanson in bookstores everywhere. Just from just Amazon, The Case for Trump. Google it. Get it. Give it to your friends left, right and center. And to people who have not been in the fray, share it. Let them understand the two Americas. Let them understand the case against Hillary, which is laid out. Let them understand what happened. They'll know what's coming. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. I'll be back next week sometime, America, on The Hugh Hewitt Show.